From there, I went on and I did Bandera in January, which was 100K. And then I did Rocky Raccoon, which is a 100 miler. And it was just a hair under six months from my stem cell transplant. And as I said, like I, there's probably other people who have done it. I just haven't found them. And I'm not saying that to brag or anything like that. I really, I, it's not that I'm like this, you know, big stellar, you know, gifted athlete, but it's really just more of a, I think people put limitations on themselves. They like to put definitions on what they can and can't do or apply rules, whether or not they think that they make any sense or not. People like to play it a little safe. I'm not saying go out and do stupid things and like ruin your body or anything like that, but listen to your body, give your body what it wants. And that includes rest when it wants rest and 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 just test the waters a little bit we are capable of doing so much more than we think we are and there's so much that people will never see touch feel taste experience because they're just they're just afraid to like step out there on that line a little bit Hey there, podcast listener. If this is your first time here, welcome to the Eat Half Walk Double podcast coming to you from the Ascend Human Performance Coaching Studios here in beautiful Stratford, New Hampshire, US of A. I'm your host, Krista. If you follow the show, thank you and welcome back. So this show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports as an exercise physiologist, coach, race director, and athlete told to the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, teammates, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Jen Schultes joins the show this week. A decade ago, she traded the gnarly, rocky, and rooty East Coast trails for the buffed breathtaking, literally, alpine tundra trails of the Pacific Northwest. But her trail running hasn't been limited to Cascadia. She's raced dozens of ultras all across the U.S. And with as much time as she spends in the woods, specifically in the Kitsap Peninsula of Washington State, i.e. the epicenter of cryptozoology, you'd think the likelihood of an encounter with Bigfoot would be pretty high. And in this case, you'd be right but not exactly in the way you imagine. Admit it, you're intrigued. Well, here she is, Jen Schultes. Jen, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm great, Chris. It's great to see you. It's very nice to see you too. So, um, geez, it's been about a decade or so since you moved to the Pacific Northwest. It has. Yeah, actually, uh, it's been just over 10 years. You're good. Like mm-hmm. I usually like, do your research. <laughs> my yes, my entire research team definitely needs a definitely needs a raise. Um, well, uh, so so um, you you live in Kingston, Washington. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kingston, Washington uh, is in Kitsap County. Right. Yeah. And and Kitsap, <laughs> and Kitsap County. Get this. Kitsap County is adjacent to Pierce County. Okay. Pierce County is to the south. Now, Pierce County 
has 83 of Washington State's 710 reported Bigfoot encounters, Mm -hmm. um, more than any other county in the state of Washington. And by the way, the state of Washington has more Bigfoot encounters than, than any other state. In fact, no other state is close uh, to Washington state in terms of Bigfoot, Bigfoot encounters. Jen, my question is, yes. have you or anyone you know ever had an encounter with a Bigfoot? I Sadly, I have not. And, and I ever since I watched The Six Million Dollar Man, Steve Austin, and he met Bigfoot, um, and, uh, was even carried by Bigfoot. And I, I've really longed for that moment. I've dreamt of it, like, you know, literally since I was a little girl, um, I really thought Bigfoot might find me on the course of the Bigfoot 200 and maybe like, you know, there's nothing in the rules. There's rules about muling. There's, you know, rules about this and that there is nothing that says if you run into Bigfoot in the woods that he can't piggyback you for a few miles, but well, you know, well, 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 Based on the based on the photos and some of the videos that I saw, um, uh, many of them uh, with you sleeping trailside, you very well could have been, a, a Bigfoot very well may have walked by you uh, at some point during one of those deep slumbers, uh, and you 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 would have been otherwise oblivious. Uh, absolutely, I mean it, it it's it's a distinct possibility that it happened and that I really missed my chance to whip out my iPhone and 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 grab like an amazing high pixel resolution photo of Bigfoot and be all over the news today. But so you know, <laughs> so true or yes, you moved to the Pacific Northwest because of your love of Bigfoot. Um, it'd be a really great story if I said yes, right? Um, but no, I did not move out here for for Bigfoot. Um, no, I moved out here. We moved out here like 10 years ago. Hon honestly, two reasons. One is I was working for Eastern Mountain Sports at the time. I wasn't just sponsored as an adventure racer for them, but I actually worked for them at the end. And the company was sold. And kind of the writing was on the wall. I mean, this was a company that I loved working for. I loved the people, still do, the people that I worked with. And I could just see that the scope of my work would be changing. I would be closing down stores instead of opening stores, and which means that it would be closing opportunities to the, uh, closing down opportunities to, you know, give access to the outdoors to people who needed it. It really wasn't what I wanted to do. And in the meantime, my husband, Richard, and I, we had come out to the Pacific Northwest. I, you know, I had never had the Pacific Northwest on my radar. Like I'm kind of embarrassed now. I don't know. It's like the best kept secret. And we came out here on vacation, fell in love with it. And we said, Hey, there's a job out there. Let's give it a shot. We can always come back. Right. And so we took a chance and we came out here. Well, my wife, Karen, and I have visited the Pacific Northwest uh, once um, a couple of years ago. We did a uh, we did a circumnavigation of Olympic State Park, uh, mm. or excuse me, Olympic National Park. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we were uh, just absolutely struck by uh, the biodiversity uh, in the Pacific Northwest. I think, geez, in, just in that trip, we experienced, you know, uh, um, you know, the, the, the ocean, the rainforest, the, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the high mountain, um, uh, alpine area is, mm -hmm. is what I'm looking for. There was another, there was another zone, uh, in there that I'm forgetting as well. Um, just, just an amazing, just an amazing place, incredibly beautiful. Um, and, uh, 
looking forward to, to, to heading back out there at some point, maybe. And, um, maybe and not a lot of bugs. <laughs> you know, they do it. They are here and they're here in pockets. And I found some of them in the Bigfoot course, but there are not a lot of bugs out here, which I'll tell you is pretty darn nice. <laughs> well, what, 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 what you don't have in bugs, you very well make up for in the size of your slugs, though. The banana oh. slug was uh, that was a critter that was new to us. Um, and uh, I mean, we have slugs here uh, in New Hampshire, but the, the banana slug is a completely different animal. Yeah, it is incredible. Like the banana slug, my dog rolled in one one time and I tried washing it. I tried wiping it off like the slime. I tried washing it off. I ultimately had to get uh, an old toothbrush um, or maybe it was somebody's toothbrush. And I just didn't tell. Um, I had to get an old toothbrush, toothbrush and literally with the bristles, like lift the slime out of my dog's hair because it was not coming out otherwise. And I've since learned that they're doing studies right now and using the same chemical composition in a banana slug's juice to seal up uh, sutures uh, inside of wet areas. So yeah, there interesting. you go. Or, you know, fascinating, fascinating critter. Um, Jen, for the listener who doesn't know you, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Chris. And thanks for having me on. Um, my name is Jen Schultes, Jennifer Schultes. Just call me Jen. Like nobody has time for three syllables is what I like to say. Um, Chris and I got to know each other like quite eons ago. I used to be an adventure racer um, based out of uh, New England. You might have heard me mention Eastern Mountain Sports. Before that, I did some triathlons and some road running, a little bit of trail running. Um, I didn't, I came into athletics, you know, I think kind of late in life in my, in my 30s, although now it feels like I was just a kid then. Um, I, um, adventure racing really was the thing that, that sparked me. Uh, we, you know, just the fact that Every course was unpredictable. You never knew what you were going to be doing while you were racing the course. You had no idea how you were doing unless you knew where another team was because everybody was able to take a different course through the woods or, um, you know, different paths. And then they'd come out the other side and say, like, did we win? <laughs> Not a great spectator sport. Uh, that was the thing that I, I really fell in love with and, and developed a team that was pretty good. I was never standalone, a stellar athlete myself. I was faster when I was younger, sure, but I wasn't winning running races. I wasn't winning mountain bike races, but we were able to pull together teams with really good navigators and, and, and people with a real diversity of uh, skills like mountain biking or navigation or just time management, um, all these things, because you had to keep track of a lot of details and also work well under stress. And some of that stress included sleep deprivation uh, too, because the races could be very short. They could be a matter of six or 12 hours, but the long races are 24, 48, three days, multi-day races. Um, so I, I kind of like, I realize I'm kind of drifted off from your question, Chris, <laughs> but that's what I did. I was the captain of Team Eastern Mountain Sports for adventure racing. Um, and I was based in New Hampshire um, and then moved out here. Oh, and put on a couple of uh, trail races there, one of which you came out and 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 ran, which was the um, Highbush Half Marathon in Greenfield, New Hampshire. 
And I, and also, oh, the, the Montreal run like a girl trail race um, for anybody who did that one at Great Brook Farm over there in Carlisle, which I missed Great Brook Farm in Carlisle, just so you know. Um, and then, yeah, then moved out here to the Pacific Northwest. I stopped adventure racing because my life just got really busy and trying to train and do multiple sports and get everybody to the start line of a race just got challenging and, you know, throwing on your running shoes and just going for a run got to be a lot easier. Um, so now I'm just a hack um, out here in the Pacific Northwest running a bunch of races and just having a lot of fun. And um, and then once again, becoming a race director with my husband will be the race directors in September of a race that we just took over. The old race director moved away. And so we're running a 25 and a 50K at the Olympic Mountains trail races on the Olympic Peninsula, which rumor has it, you know where that is. I do. I do. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> thank you for that introduction. Sure. Let me let me back up a little bit because I want yeah. to make sure uh, that, that, that the listener has this in, important context that um, <laughs> not only were you uh, and your teammates at EMS uh, um, uh, a, a good adventure racing team, you were the best adventure racing team, certainly in our region, in the New England region. And in fact, um, uh, you folks also won the 2006 uh, U.S. Adventure Racing Association National Championship. Um, a, 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 and there's an interesting story in there. And I'm, I'm going to have you I'm going to have you tell it because sure. uh, there was an interesting finish to that 2006 mm -hmm. uh, U.S. Adventure Racing Association. Now, um, so so you and I came to know each other. Well, I, I actually knew who you were before you knew who I was. And the reason is, of course, because you were on the most decorated, most celebrated, most successful adventure racing team. I want to say in the world, but that that may be a little bit of hyperbole, at least that in is, New England, at least in, <laughs> sure. at, least, at least in New England. And again. Um, and, and EMS stood on top of the, the national podium in 2006. But when I when my brother and I started adventure racing in the very early 2000s, whatever it was, 2004, 2005, something like that, we got into adventure racing to have something to do together. Yeah. And um, what we found was what, what you already know and, and alluded to, and, and that is that uh, you need teammates to to, mm -hmm. to to do adventure racing. Uh, they're not solo endeavors. They're team endeavors, two-person teams or three-person teams or geez, probably up to five or six uh, member teams. Anyway, you had to have you had to have teammates, which was the inspiration for us for Acidotic Racing. Acidotic Racing actually started not as an event management company, but it started as an adventure racing team. And the 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 uh, the motivation was that we needed teammates because my brother Jay and I we you know we could participate in two person adventure adventure races but there were three person races that we wanted to do that we needed teammates so we mm -hmm. we formed a team and yeah. um that 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 two person team of my brother and I eventually you know became a group of of a half dozen people which those half dozen you know talked their friends and next thing you knew we had a we had a group of a dozen or so people that we would that we would select from because you you know this too mm -hmm. not everybody but particularly when you're sort of on the recreational level, uh, not every, not everybody necessarily has open weekends to get together to do adventure racing. So it was nice to have a lot of people to pick from. Anyway, our, our, 
our introduction into uh, adventure racing was not nearly as decorated as yours. We, I think we DNF the first four or five races that we did. W quick story. I'll tell, I'll, I'll tell a, a quick story. I think you'll get a kick out of this. We did one 12 hour race. I don't know. I, I want to say it was, it was somewhere in, um, uh, in, in New York state, um, bear mountain, that sound that comes mm -hmm. to mind, but it doesn't matter. It was somewhere in, in New York state. It was a 12 hour race. Well, we got so horribly lost that, uh, we eventually just found a highway. Uh, <laughs> and we, we, we hitchhiked cause we had no idea where we were. We got to a highway. We didn't know which side of the highway we needed to be on, but we, we, because we, we had been lost for hours and we were way past the 12 hour mark at this point, like way past it. Uh, and so we figured that, and we had, I mean, again, we were so pitifully lost. We found an interstate, we hitchhiked back to, uh, back to the venue. And when we got that, back to the it's venue, against the rules, Chris, you're automatic DQ. Sorry. <laughs> well, well, we, well, we, you know, we, by the time we get back to the venue, you know, it, it was, it, it, there were only two vehicles left in the entire parking lot one they was the race one was the race director and the other was the, was the local search and rescue oh no <laughs> and and it was funny because the 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 expressions the reaction of those two the, those two individuals was t totally different the 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 ems guy was so relieved that he didn't have to go out all night trying to find us <laughs> The race director was so incredibly pissed at us that we were, you know, we were literally, we, they had done the award ceremony. Like everybody left. <laughs> oh he couldn't leave because we were still out there. And uh, he went up one side of us and down the other. And uh, I don't think we ever raced his, his event again. He was really kind of pissed, but that was, that, 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 that's how we adventure race. Now, eventually we got better. We figured mm -hmm. it out. Um, but, but you, but you guys at, at EMS, you folks at EMS, uh, we're absolutely the gold standard. I mean, we just, we admired what you mm -hmm. did. Um, again, I, I, I came to know who you were long before, uh, we had a chance to meet, but that's, that's where, that's where it all started. Well, I mentioned 2006, uh, that and, and, year. Th and thank you for that because like, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I needed that stroking of my ego. I <laughs> It's nice. It's so nice. Everything, everything I just said was true. People can people can look it up. That we you guys were as good as we were bad. But it was but it was fine because it look it was it was a great day in the woods, right? Yeah. You know, in, always in, in in the end. Uh, and uh, some of my some of the some of the the best stories that I tell at family gatherings are uh, are of my brother and I and our epic failures in adventure racing. It's just there. Of course, I, I never let the facts get in the way of a good story, which which my wife always elbows me when I'm telling these stories because I never tell them the same way two times in a row. They always <laughs> the stories always get better as time goes on, um, which which probably means that I'm getting further and further away from the truth. But uh, be that as it may, 2006, um, EMS sends two teams to the mm -hmm. to the national championships. Now, by the way, where where were the national championships held in uh, 2006? Yeah, so 2006, that was Santa Barbara. So, um, Santa Barbara, yeah, so California. out here in California. Okay, yeah. all right. So, I've never been to Santa Barbara. This is um, this is a 24 hour uh, national championships. That's right. That's right. I think they give you 
30 hours to complete the race, but it's, it's um, yeah, they, they generally would say that the winners um, will finish in probably 18 hours. The majority of people will finish at about 24 and then they let people, um, you know, continue racing until about 30 hours. At least that's how it used to be. Okay. So um, you're, you're the captain of one of those two teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, who, who captains the other team? Do you remember? Yeah. So, so I was the captain of team Eastern mountain sports. And when we went to go to nationals, um, we had a similar situation that you kind of described a minute ago, where you had a big stable of people to pull from. We had had such an amazing year that it just did not seem right to leave anybody at home. We had Dave Lamb, who had become a phenomenal navigator, um, I've got a funny story about him learning how to navigate if we have time for it later. Be John Hartley, another phenomenal um, navigator. Both guys are great athletes too. Don't get, get me wrong. Um, Chad Denning, uh, RIP, Chad Denning, love mm-hmm. you, brother. Um, and uh, um, then we also had um, – Eric, um, I don't know why I'm trying. No, it's, it's okay. I'm not, not putting you on the spot. Um, and, um, um, and, but we needed another female, which was um, the only issue that we had. So uh, friends of friends said, hey, there's this woman who is here from Sweden and she's an adventure racer. She raced in Sweden. She's going to school. She's down at Yale. And we, we grabbed her and put her on a team. And she's just such a dear, incredible person. And the two teams decided we're going to race together the whole way until somebody can't go any further. We're sticking together, which is not a good strategy. We had some people say like, oh, that's cheating. You had two teams together. And it's like, no, it's not. That means you've got to get six people across the finish line together. Um, And and I I will interject that in in adventure racing, you can only go as fast as your slowest or weakest Mm -hmm. teammate in that moment. And so now not only is it not only is it potentially, you know, one teammate on one team, but it's all of a sudden you've you've significantly increased the odds of one person or more being in a bad way and slowing the entire Mm -hmm. group down. So much more difficult to travel with a larger group than a smaller group. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Eric Bowker, by the way, I don't know why I had a hard time pulling out his um, his last name. Um, and and that's the thing about adventure racing is that people think that, oh, you're strong, like 100% of the time. Everybody's going to have a low moment in that race. And somebody's low might be different than somebody's low. But I know poor Frida, like on, on day one, I, th- I like kept her up all night, like the night before. And she was having the sleep monsters hit her um, in the middle of the race. And so we had to you know, take care of her. We had to stop. All six of us, you know, had to stop and and get her through what she needed to get through at that um, point in time. And then later in the race, um, I was having a, a physical meltdown of, of some sort. And I didn't realize until after the race, I had gotten so sick. Um, like one of the more, more notable times I've been sick in my life. And I think it was setting in at that point in time. And there were, we had to push our bikes up this hill. I remember that was 
just cruel. And we, in adventure racing, you're allowed to throw a tow rope on another person. You can mule, you can mule all you want in those races, whatever it takes to get everybody across the finish line. People just dragging me up this, this hill pretty much to get us over the finish line. And then us all coming in together to the finish line in, in Santa Barbara. Um, yeah, it was it was a pretty wonderful and, and great experience for us to do that, which is something that nobody had done before. Um, yeah, you, you you mentioned Dave Lamb and uh, Joe Brodigan. So Joe didn't race on this team um, at nationals, um, but Joe has raced on a lot of Eastern Mountain Sports national yes. teams. Um, and he is uh, has so many like masters championships. I don't even know if he, if he keep track, if he can keep track anymore. Yeah. He, uh, from what, what we recall, he was, uh, just, I mean, the best, the best navigator, the best orienteer, uh, around. He's incredible. Didn't, yeah. did, didn't he work as a surveyor or something? Uh, <laughs> wasn't that, wasn't that like his job? Man, your research assistants are no, not that, letting you that, down 100%. That's, yeah, he, that's totally, just, totally just memory. That's what Yeah, I, so this is a guy who works and lives in maps all the time. He loves maps. He was He's like nuts about him. <laughs> he was he was unbeatable. That's what that's what I remember. Uh tell tell the Dave Lamb story about how Dave came to be uh, came, came to uh, be proficient in navigation. Well, well, the story is that at Appalachian Extreme one year, we were racing with um, Vitenis Benitas, who we called him V for short. He's from Lithuania. And V was just an unbelievable, you know, internationally ranked orienteer um, on top of the fact that he could do absolutely anything. And he was just charming as could be. And we're out there in the middle of the night and we're in this snow field in the middle of the woods somewhere in Maine. And, and it's one of these, like, everybody's like punch, punching through the snow, like just post holing, you know, like one, two, three steps, boom, you know, down. And we're just struggling in this area. And the tennis would stop. He was, he was leading the way. He would stop and he would just stare at his map for like 30 seconds, just so intensely. And then he would lift up his head and he would point and he goes, we go this way. And, and, and he would go on a little bit further and then he would stop and he would stand there and he would stare looking at his map for like another 30 really intense seconds. And, and he kept doing this. And Dave was just learning how to navigate at this time. And Dave said, V, you have to tell me, like, what, what's your process. What are you thinking about? Like what you need to teach me, what are you doing? And V said, I'll, I'll tell you later. And um, so we went up and we found this checkpoint on top of this mountain, like, like on top of this really steep hill, like everybody went to the wrong place, but we got it. And we went out and after the race, um, Dave said to him again, he said, V, now you've got to tell me during the race, you were staring so intently at the map. You have to tell me, what are you thinking about when you do that, and V says, I'll tell you, but you're probably going to be mad at me. And Dave goes, no, 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 you got to tell me. And he said, I was sleeping. (laughs) (laughs) That was one of my favorite stories about racing with those guys. And that's why uh, 
Um, and that's why in adventure racing, we learned uh, early on that uh, everyone needs to be navigating because my, so my, my, my brother was the, was the lead navigator for us. He's a, he's a helicopter pilot. And uh, I don't know why we, we just assumed, I don't know how we made the connection between <laughs> helicopter pilot must be a good navigator. But anyway, we made, we made that, we made that connection and we made the mistake early on um, of, of relying exclusively on my brother to navigate. Well, at some point, uh, even the best navigator is going to get just a wee bit turned around. Okay, not mm -hmm. lost. We never said we were lost. We, we we would we would refer to ourselves as not found. Yeah, not or disoriented. Fine, but we were never lost. <laughs> no, I might have said we were lost earlier. I didn't mean that. I meant we weren't we weren't found, or we were slightly we were slightly off map. Anyway, what we learned uh, early on was that everyone needed to be navigating because inevitably, um, you know. Uh, either because of, uh, you know, because of a bonk or uh, just, you know, it just incredible fatigue uh, or injury or whatever in the world it was. Uh, sometimes the, the lead navigator just needs a little bit of help. So everybody needed to know where we were on the map uh, at all times, even if there were times in which um, uh, the lead navigator was the lead the lead navigator. Um, you, you mentioned you mentioned our, our our dear friend Chad Denning, who we lost a number of years ago. Yeah. Uh, you you raced with 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 Chad uh, on those EMS teams. I remember that uh, quite quite vividly. Um, any 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 good stories about about Chad and, and adventure racing? Again, I'm, I totally just put you on the spot. But or, or what or what do you remember about Chad and, and adventure racing? Well, one of the funniest stories I have is the very first time that we went to try out um, Chad on a team. He met Dave and I over in Portland, Maine. Um, this is when, oh, let me see here. The, the race organization that used to do um, Appalachian Extreme, they also did like a, a 12 and a 24 hour. It was originally Trace and um, Theron and Norm um, who put on that race. And then um, it became the... Um, the Nielsen family. Um, I can't remember what their race organization name was. And so I can't remember who was putting on the race this year over in Maine, but um, Chad showed up without a paddle <laughs> and we had to borrow a paddle for him. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, come on. <laughs> um, and, um, but he proved himself really quickly. We had to paddle in the, some, some bay um, and the tide was out and we ended up paddling into this place where the canoe basically dragged on the bottom and he jumped out of this canoe and immediately like sunk himself himself in this muck mud that was just like, I'm surprised that he didn't just go directly to the center of the earth. Like he was so in this thing that Dave and I are like leaning over on one side of the boat to like counterweigh it so that he can try to like unsuck himself from the mud and get back into the boat. <laughs> oh, that was, that was the first time that we ever raced with, with the Chad. I, I will tell you that he was selfless in the way that he raced. Um, he, he would, um, he would tow. He, he was like, he was, he knew how to navigate to a certain extent. Um, he could, he could run fast. He could bike fast. He could paddle like a demon. Um, he didn't complain. And he was, um, I'm sure I have like a, a bunch of other funny, funny stories about Chad, but he just loved being out there and loved being a part of a team.
and he brought this passion that he had um, for the outdoors, for sports. It changed his life. Um, if I remember correctly, he was like he was a, a chain smoker before he ever started doing any of this, and he it totally you know changed his life. Um, this was before I met him. I can't even imagine him as that and. As I said, he was good at anything. He um, did ultra races and he often won or was in the top three in, in whatever he did and just always never lost a sense of humor out there mm. and really yeah. inspired a lot of people. Uh, he, he, he absolutely did that. Yeah. I mean, I came, I came to know him through, uh, through, through adventure racing. And, you know, at that point he was, he was a, he was a, he was a well-established endurance athlete uh, and would, uh, would sort of, set his own mark as you know, one of the best endurance athletes uh, in the region for sure. Um, yeah. So that was early, the early two thousands, um, mid, mid two thousands. Um, you know, it wasn't long, it wasn't long after that. And, um, you know, by, by 2010s, um, 2000 teens, um, adventure racing here, uh, in new England, um, uh, races began to sort of slowly go away and, uh, uh, race organizations, uh, racing ahead was a, was a local, uh, uh adventure oh, racing, racing yeah. ahead. Yeah. That's yeah. the name I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh Tracy Olofsson, uh, and, uh, and her husband, um, uh, they, uh, they ran an adventure racing association. There was an adventure racing association out of Connecticut um, that had a series of, of 12 hour, six and 12 hour adventure races as well. Anyway. Genesis. Yeah. Genesis adventure racing. Thank yeah, you. Brian Duncanson. Um, is that, is that the, is that the one, the one who uh, tore you up? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 I had a feeling. <laughs> yes. It, it, it was a Genesis adventure adve race. Yes, it was. <laughs> Thank you. I don't specifically remember that it was him, but it probably, it probably was him. Um, but, but races started to, uh, to be discontinued race organizations, uh, 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 uh were disbanded. Doesn't mean that adventure racing wasn't happening on the national level. It's, it certainly was. Um, but it, it really died here uh, and died off here in New England. Um, of course, you, you know, you, you moved to the Pacific Northwest, as, as we said, in, in 2013. But um, did you see that, Jen, before before you left? Did, did you notice that adventure racing, at least regionally, was and I maybe the maybe the bigger races, untamed New England was still kicking around. Um, but the number of small races, urban adventure races, heck, I, we did it. We did an urban adventure race in Portland, Maine. We did an urban adventure race in Concord, New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. We did a, we did an urban adventure race in Hartford, Connecticut. Like those races all disappeared. What, what happened to adventure racing? Do you think? Um, well, I left. So, <laughs> um, okay, you sure. know, so when I started adventure racing, and I can't even remember the the exact year, um, you know, it was just dinosaurs chasing you around in those days. Um, <laughs> when I started adventure racing, actually, I I started right after a lot of people um, knew about the Eco Challenge on TV, and I were, I was like one of those people who was watching it, going like, wow. I could do that. And, and then, so I started adventure racing. Actually, it was, um, David Darby. Um, there's a name for you, David Darby. 
uh, see, here's the thing in venture racing to be in the elite category, it was a co-ed team. So you ha needed to have at least one man and one woman on the team. And the teams were either three or four people. And David Darby had gone over and done eco challenge. I, I think in Australia and, um, and he was totally hooked and he needed a woman for the team. And I, was just dumb enough and around, you know, so I said, sure, like, let's do this. And so I didn't know how to ride a mountain bike or, or anything, but um, I fell in love with it and was passionate about it. I mean, it was pretty exciting. And all I wanted to do was get to Eco Challenge. And then they stopped having them. And <laughs> a lot of the, the the sport really started out with a lot of big races, uh, like the um, Raid Galois, um, the Eco Challenge, and a, and a bunch of others. And these were races that, um, it was um, like big money. People, these were races that were weeks long sometimes and people had big money sponsors and they went all over the, the world um, racing. And then I, I think it was just wasn't sustainable. Then plus also in 2008, I guess it was, then we had the, um, yeah, the housing market crisis. Yeah, the, the housing market crisis. Now, of course, I was adventure racing before then. I think, you know, so I don't know what happened to the big money. And then it became really local. And it was a ton of fun because races were popping up all over the place. And it was fun. And it was exciting. And there were people like, um, so Racing Ahead was originally owned by um, Trace and Thayer and Norm, Norm Shepard before it went to the Nielsen's. Um, and they were people who had done eco challenge and they'd done raid and they were into really interesting races, races that had a lot of navigation races that had a lot of unpredictable stuff. Like you might be paddling a canoe down some crazy whitewater river. Um, you might be in the middle of the night repelling off of some cliff, you know, in the, the heart of Maine. Um, you didn't know oftentimes until you got to these places, what it was going to be. And so we're talking about long legs, hard legs. Um, and then I think a lot of race organizers out there said, oh, wow, we can we can put on a race that com is comprised of paddling, orienteering. Orienteering, for those who don't know, is basically map and compass racing, primarily off trail where you just follow the land um, terrain and, and contours and details that are out there. And it's just map and compass. You, you're not allowed to use a GPS. Um, so we ended up starting to do a lot of races that were just really poorly run. Um, checkpoints weren't where they were supposed to be. And it just felt like everybody was working off the same template where it'd be like, okay, we're going to do a run leg and then we're going to do a paddle leg and then we're going to do a bike leg. And it just, it started to lose its creativity in my mind. So I, I think that there were some poorly run races that were out there that just sort of watered it, it all down for people, um, which is too bad because there were some really great races too. I always loved Brian Duncanson's races, those those Genesis races. I thought he did really creative races. Um, again, Racing Ahead did fantastic races. Um, Venture Racing Association. Yeah, on Team New England. Yeah, Naira, New York yep. Venture Race Association, great races. Green Mountain um, Adventure Racing Association, the GMA. Black guy was nuts. 
Um, that guy will get you killed. <laughs> no, I'm just kind of almost kidding. Um, those races were pretty interesting because you never knew what was going to happen in those. Um, some of the races in the middle of the country, like I'm trying to think who the guy was out in Missouri who used to put on races. We used to travel for the, these races and they were really cool and they were really interesting. But yeah, I just, I, I kind of got a little bored. I think Rootstock Racing now down in Pennsylvania, I think they're putting on some some good races uh, from from what I hear. I haven't unfortunately done any of them, but I know those guys and they're they're good and they're creative. So I would expect expect that they're probably pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my guess is just that it, um, you know, it, and there are a lot of work, a ton, a ton of work to put on these races, to organize them. I don't think anybody makes any money. People say, you know, it's hundreds of dollars to enter them, but nobody was making any money. It was truly a labor of love. It's long days, weeks preparing all weekend long, trying to get volunteers out there. I think it's just, it got really hard on everyone. Well, for me, I think the, I, I don't think it was any surprise. I I don't think it was a surprise that, um, that the fall of adventure racing coincided with the rise of uh, the color run. Um, you know, the <clears throat> adventure racing was this, uh, it was this, um, this amazing opportunity to, to have this, this, this incredible experience with, uh, with, a, with a group of people, um, experiences that you'll end up telling stories about for, for years, for the rest of your life in some cases. Um, but the sport was really technical and, um, and it, it required a tremendous amount of fitness and, 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 and quite a bit of skill. Um, and, and so, you know, these, these race organizers were pulling from a fairly narrow or shallow pool of potential participants. Um, on the other hand, um, these experiential events, color run, for instance, is an example of that began to pop up just about the same time. What's color run? I haven't, I, right. These, well, I don't even know that color runs are even still a thing now. Color runs are based on, I want to say they're based on, uh, 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 these far East traditions or festivals in which, um, um, uh, uh, powdered, uh, or colored powder is thrown in the air and you, you run through these clouds of powdered color and you, uh, you, you, you finish with you're covered in colored powder. It's literally. Are you doing this naked? Like I'm, I'm not like, this is totally like a new concept for me. <laughs> you're like, going no, to have the internet it. search this, Jen, as soon as the episode is over. Color runs. Yeah. They're not really a thing anymore, but they were in the early, in the early 2000s. Again, right about the time that adventure racing was starting to fall off, these experiential events were starting to pop up. That is, you can get together a group of friends, you you know, you don't really even necessarily need, you don't really need to be in in tremendous physical shape, but it was so fun. Uh, And, and just a, just a, this really rich, interesting experience for people to have without, without any fancy equipment, without any technical skills. Um, uh, And, and, and I I don't think it's, it's much of a surprise. I'm not necessarily sure that one is hundred percent related to the other, but it was interesting that there was this shift, right? That that younger people were looking for these shared experiences, these fun shared experiences. Now, for you or I, adventure racing was fun and it was a shared experience. But I think that I think that the majority of people would have looked at adventure racing and said, "That's really kind of nutty. That doesn't mm-hmm. sound like a whole heck of a, <laughs> of a lot of fun." It was to us, yeah. But, but it, it's but a it lot really, of work. People don't really. Even- 
realize it, how much work it is just to get to the start line of one of those things. Yeah, for sure. But but it, I just don't think it appealed to a broad enough audience. And I think yeah, that I and, and and we're, we're going to talk about race directing uh, and event management here in just a moment. Um, and uh, as we know, uh, as uh, as event managers, as race directors, uh, now you don't have to necessarily appeal to everyone. <laughs> but 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 we all sort of have break even points in terms of in terms of number of participants, right? I mean, we don't want to lose money putting events mm-hmm. on, uh, and uh, and I and I wonder uh, if uh, if that if that wasn't part of it. The probably uh, our our competitive tastes were changing. Doesn't mean that adventure racers that their chase tastes were changing. I think that um, I think that event management started to change a little bit and started to have a much broader appeal. And I think and and that certainly that worked. I'll also say too to put a fine point on that, that uh, the other thing that that began to emerge was the uh, were obstacle course races and eventually Spartan races. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, not the same as adventure racing, but the but but a similar share can be a similar shared experience. Uh, certainly a lot edgier than a color run, right? Because you, you get to put a headband on and crawl through the mud and barbed wire. So, mm-hmm. you know, it seems a, a lot more primal. Um, but um, but those those obstacle course races and specifically Spartan races also began to emerge just about mm-hmm. the same time that adventure racing was in decline. Mm-hmm. Well, um, well, you, you, uh, would, would I, I, just have to, I have to just drop a, a quick yeah. quiz question in here for you, Chris. Already. Who did I go to high school with? And I know the answer to this question. No, you're probably not. Joe DeSena. <laughs> Joe DeSena of, you, uh, of, of Did you really? I did. I did. It was funny because I re-met him, um, adventure racing. And, and it was one of those things where I'm like, boy, this guy seems really familiar. I guess I've just seen him out on the course a ton. And then one day I was looking through my um, high school yearbook and I was like, Joe DeSena. <laughs> I was like, of course. <laughs> and like, it was yeah. just one of those weird things. And when he bought his property up in Pittsfield, Vermont, um, a few of us, including Joe Brodigam, who you mentioned earlier, we went up to kind of scope out the property. He had this idea of doing this death race. Um, and we went up and said, sure. That's crazy. Do it. <laughs> and it all just kind of, you know, went from there. So um, <laughs> you never did the death race, though. I never did. I thought about it, but I never did. So I was a two time DNF at the death race. That's two stories for two other days. But OK, uh, but you uh, went. <laughs> I, 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 I did go and, and I did have the opportunity to meet Joe. Uh, very, very interesting guy. Um, uh, obviously a very successful guy, uh, amazing athlete in his own right. Yes, uh, he is. Uh, right. Um, so when you moved to the Pacific Northwest, you would make the shift from, uh, adventure racing to, uh, to trail racing as, as sort of your, your, your primary competitive outlet. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that, um, that, that trail running was, certainly a lot easier logistically um, mm-hmm. than, uh, than than mountain biking and paddling and particularly combining all those all those activities um, you would um, you you have amassed uh, quite an impressive uh, ultra distance <laughs> resume um, I, I I told you when we we, we did the pre-show that I was looking up your results on uh, on, on ultra sign up and Jen, you've got like 89 uh, results there in ultra sign up. Now, not all of them are ultra distance races, but probably uh, 
nearly nearly all of them are altered distance yeah. events. You've been really you've been really busy in that space, um, uh, and uh, you've 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 had some trials and tribulations along the way, which which I want to talk about. But I want to but but I, I want to go to your uh, your most recent ultra. And uh, have you talk a little bit about that? I think you had uh, you had an interesting experience there. Uh, well, we we talked about Bigfoot uh, earlier at the yeah. opening of the show, and that was that was that was sort of uh, you know in, uh, on on purpose uh, unintentional because um, it, it it gave me an, an opening to uh, to have you talk about the Bigfoot two hundred, sure, uh, the two hundred mile uh, ultra distance race in the uh, Cascade Mountains in Washington State. Uh, you just recently came back from that race. Um, tell us what happened. Sure. Well, spoiler alert, DNF didn't finish. Um, so, but I mean, sometimes your DNFs are like your more interesting story. I'm, I'm just trying to 100%. sell it here, Chris. 100%. Um, for, for those who don't know, um, I think people say that the 200s are, are now the, the, the new 100s. Um, Bigfoot 200 is a race that starts right by Mount St. Helens, and it goes through the Cascades, like you mentioned, wanders around. It's a point-to-point -point race, which is pretty cool for a 200-miler. It's actually 206 miles, and it has, uh, I want to say, like 45,000 feet of climbing, something something in there. But right. um, what's a 1,000 here or there, right? Right. And I, it's my first time doing doing a 200 the so the reason I wanted to do this race is when it was first announced, which I think was maybe 2014. So I can't believe it's been that long ago. When I first heard about it, I said, aha, I said, that's a race for me because I'd done so much adventure racing and knew how to stay up, you know, and manage sleep for for days on end. Um, and I, I just figured I figured it would be easy. I figured a, I figured 100 miles would be easy. Um and then I started doing hundred milers and I found out that they weren't so easy. I was, I was having trouble with them and, you know, we may or we may not talk about um, my, you know, come back to the fact that the reason I wasn't feeling so great was that I, it turns out I had cancer. Um, but so I struggled with the 100 milers and, but never forgot that, you know, I kind of had this, this goal, this dream of, of getting back to Bigfoot 200 and a friend of mine, Kathleen, raced it last year and she won it. And it just sounded like such an interesting experience for her um, that I felt like I needed to go and do it myself. People I've talked to who have finished the race say that it's it, it does something to you. And I'm like, well, I have to go and find out what it does to me, right? Like, let's go and do this thing. And so it was for me, it was kind of my opportunity to go back, do that again, um, go back to something that, that you know, I'd given up the, the thought about doing, you know, when I got sick. Um, it was... Um, so I DNF'd myself at mile 106, and I had plenty of time. People said like, oh, like what happened? And I think it's it's interesting that um, I don't know what happened. I think there's not one answer about what happened, but I, it's it's something that I'm, you know, just kind of struggling with, you know, to be honest with you this year in particular, where I'm running fine. 
I mean, I do. I mean, I'm getting older. I'm, I'm going to be 55 in a week. Um, I have knee injuries. I have torn meniscus that they can't fix in both of my knees. And I had a high hamstring injury for, you know, you know, the first half of this year. Um, and so all that stuff kind of, um, you know, kind of got in the way. Um, I had to, I had to train really fast for it. I finally got a, a, a steroid injection in my knee and finally my hamstring started feeling better. And I was finally able to train, start training really beginning of June. And, and I think what I got out of um, June and July was that I did a lot of volume. Um, I went from thinking, I'm going to drop out of this thing. Like there's no way I'm going to, you know, go to the start line of this thing. And then when I found out how little money I would get back, I, I said, you know what, I'm just going to go and hike this whole thing. I'm just going to go hike it from start to finish and, um, and just see what happens out there. And that's what I did. I had some great training. I remember this is something that Dave Lamb that we mentioned, uh, Dave Lamb, my, uh, the captain or the lead navigator rather of the adventure race team. He used to say, it was like, it's not the racing, it's the training that, that you really look forward to. And I got into places in the Olympic mountains that I had never seen before. My nephew who wanted to do his first ultra, he trained his tail off and he came up and he did, um, the devil's gulch 50 miler with me. So I got to do that a week later. I went and I did cascade crest, which is a, this year it was 102 miler. Um, and so I did a lot of big stuff. And I think when I just got to Bigfoot, I don't know, maybe I was tired. Maybe I just seen too much of the same terrain. Um, I've been really stressed out at work. Uh, I had a couple of races earlier this year that I DNF'd on, not because I wasn't racing fine or whatever, but, and then I think, you know, a little bit of it is as you do get older, you have to maybe realign what your expectations are. And I think that can be a little bit hard when you see yourself slow down. Um, I went into Bandera 100K in January, for example, really excited. I was like, I'm feeling good. I'm running well. I'm going to have a good race. And I got there and I was having a bad race. <laughs> and I did love loop, but I was like so annoyed that I dropped out. And my husband afterwards it was like, you were going to win your age group. And I was like, I know, <laughs> but I wasn't having fun. And I think a lot of running for me is just being in the right mindset, um, not just during the race, but leading up to the race and just having my mind be quiet and being really present and coming into the race with a lot of gratitude. And I think just my life has been my, as I said, my work has been really crazy and really stressful. And I think it's just bleeding over into everything else, which is not a great thing, I admit. And I think just not being able to come into the race with that gratitude and with that quiet mind, um, it's something I'm struggling with. And so when I got to mile 106 of Bigfoot, I felt great. I just, I just didn't want to do it anymore. I don't know. I can't explain it. And people say, well, you'll go and you'll get it next time. And I'm like, will I, <laughs> will I go back? I don't even know. I don't want to say no, but I'm yeah, not, I, no. yeah, I don't know. I, I think, I kind of think you did explain it. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, it's, it's it's so true that ultra distance racing. I mean, clearly there's a there's a big physical component to it, um, but it, but 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 it's equally mental, uh, yeah. psychological. Um, uh, you know, for instance, in you know, in in, in any traditional 
training plan leading up to whether it's a hundred miler or a 200 miler, um, you know, maybe, maybe you do a hundred K as a, as a, as a, as a, as the longest long training activity for a hundred miler, but that's even pretty rare. Um, you know, for a 200 mile race, you know, you, you had not, you had not gone beyond, well, you tell me how far was, was the furthest you had gone prior to attempting the 200 mile. You hadn't gone beyond, behind, beyond 106 miles. Yeah. Just a handful you. of miles past it, you know, a couple of races are 102, 101, 103 miles, but yeah. Right. Right. So that, so, you know, so those other 80 something miles were totally unknown. Right. Um, and uh, I really feel like, um, like, like, like the psychological component, the mental component, the mindset component, um, is a, is a really, really big deal. And it's difficult. I think when, um, when, when, when aspects of your life outside of your training are more turbulent, yeah. it's difficult for us to, it's easy for us to get through the training relatively speaking, not physically easy, but intellectually it's easy because we can, you know, we, we get into a, an activity pattern and we know what we're doing on certain days and we just go out and do it. Um, but race day is a, it, it's, it's a complete and unique experience because uh, new and novel things are thrown at you all the time. And I, I really feel like when, when, when you get out of the problem solving mindset, you know, in other words, being in the moment, staying in the moment, working to work through every challenge that comes your way when you're unable to do that is when you just can't mentally fathom going another step. And sometimes health related issues are the end to your day. But I have found that um, that your experience is not terribly uncommon, that you are physically OK. I mean, as OK as you could be after after mm -hmm. covering one hundred and six miles. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you, you weren't physically broken. You weren't you weren't being pulled because of medical reasons. Uh, you were you you pulled yourself because of however you would describe it, but it wasn't, it wasn't a physical thing. No, it just wasn't making me happy to be out of there. I had a little bit of a Forrest Gump moment where I was like, I think I'll go home now. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty much ex exactly what it was. And, you know, I've, I've, I've had this happen a few times over the years. Like I remember right shortly after I turned 40, I changed careers, bought a house, got a dog, and I just wasn't able to train as much, even just running, forget about adventure racing. I started this, that's about the time I started drifting away from adventure racing. And I remember going to trail races where I'd start out the race and I'd see somebody run by me that I knew. And I'd be like, whew, they're going out too fast. I'm going to see them soon. And then I'd never see them again. And I was dropping out of races, whether it was trail running races or triathlons or mountain bike races, because I was... I was horrified at how badly I was doing and I I'd rather have a DNF than to come in as slow as I knew I was going to come in. And so I had to get through that. That was like a hump that I had where I had to go back and I had to learn to, you know, the, the gratitude thing again, right. To be grateful for being able to do what I could reassess and readjust my expectations for what I could do and just be happy doing, being able to do and, and so I went through that and, and I got to a, a really pretty happy, um, place for, for a long time. And so now I think I'm just getting to another, another little hump here where it's, it's different, 
Um, part of it may be that I'm slowing down a little bit more, but part of it I think is really just being able to, um, you know, find that little namaste, you know, point place in my brain where I can turn off all of the noise and I can just let myself be out there and, and be happy to be on my feet, be happy to have the physical ability just to do, even if it's not to excel. And, and so that's, and, and, it, and it's weird because usually running makes me really happy. So that's the, that's the thing that I need to kind of figure out and, and get tapped into mm. um, once again. So that's my mm. new, my new challenge. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's a, there's a lot of things that you just said that, that, that resonate, you know, the, the ego forward mindset that is focused on performance versus the, the true self or the higher self forward mindset that values the, the process uh, that, um, that, that, that values, um, you know, who we become as we work toward, um, you know, being the best version of ourselves. You mentioned, you mentioned, you mentioned gratitude a number of times there. I just want to also quickly circle back to that. Um, you know, I only ask four things of my athletes when they race, just four, four things. I ask them to be focused, to be tenacious, to be grateful and to be curious. Hmm. Now, nowhere in there am I asking them to stand on top of the podium or to run a PR or, you know, set a course record. It, they, 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 you know, they are just those four things, focus, tenacity, gratitude and curiosity. So it's interesting that uh, that you mentioned the word gratitude several times is that that really that really resonates with me. Those are all obviously process based uh, objectives. Um, so you, you, you referenced a couple times there, Jen, um, uh, uh, what, what, what happened in 2016, um, uh, in which you, uh, you had a little bit of a disruption to your ultra distance, uh, training and racing a little bit of a disruption is sort of an understatement. Um, uh, talk a little bit about, uh, about what happened in, in 2016. Yeah, yeah, no, sure. I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, and, and it's something I don't talk about a lot. And it's not because I don't want to talk about it or like, so if you ever see me and you want to ask me about it, ask me about it. It's just that it's not one of these things that I want to define me or, or who I am. Um, so um, so I like to say that ultra running saved my life. And that's, and I mentioned earlier that when I started running hundred milers, I thought that, that they would be easy because of all the adventure racing I'd done. And I found out that they were actually pretty hard to do and to finish. And, and I, I went and I did Pinhoti. That was my first one. And I finished, but I felt like really terrible towards the end. And, and let's just say I was having like some, some GI issues that were kind of new to me. And so then I did a couple more races and really struggled, um, really struggled with energy level, had more of these really like um, unattractive GI issues and was just struggling with energy throughout the year. Times that I would um, I would just go and take a nap for like five hours in the middle of the day. And I I went to a doctor um, and to get it kind of checked out. I'm, I'm giving you the short version of the story, but um, she saw that there was something wrong with my kidneys and that I was, um, 
uh, spilling proteins into my urine. I'm giving you like the long story, like uh, spoiler alert, I have cancer. Okay. For those of you who want me to just like, you want to like fast forward. Um, so, but she saw that I had protein spilling over into my urine and the immediate thought was that, um, you know, I had kidney damage and guess what? I do have kidney damage. Um, and I don't know how long I've had kidney damage for, but it, it's a kind of cancer, this multiple myeloma, it's a hematological cancer where it attacks your plasma cells and it comes on really slowly over years. And, um, and it turns out that I probably had it like towards the end of adventure racing. Um, and I was kind of struggling towards the end of adventure racing with energy and, and staying awake. And I, pr I probably had it then, um, not confirmed, but, um, just get yourself checked out, you know, it never hurts people. Um, so we went through all this stuff, you know, did I take too much ibuprofen when I raised all this stuff? And then we did some more studies or I say meet we like I actually didn't do any of the studies, but they did a bunch of labs and they found out that I had multiple myeloma and it was going to require a bunch of chemo and a stem cell transplant. And one of the very first things that I read at the time was that most people um, don't live more than five years after they're diagnosed. And so, you know, I, I really struggled with it. I, I wondered, you know, do I even want to go through the stem cell transplant? Because everything I read from people, like they were having some pretty rough results. I couldn't find anybody who had ever returned to running or doing anything after they'd been through this. And it looked really dire. Um, and I started trying to, uh, um, uh, it's, um, I'm trying to think what, what the word is. Um, it's not bargaining, but anyway, I was like talking to my doctor and I was like, maybe I shouldn't go with the, through with a stem cell transplant. I mean, I don't feel that bad. Like, why do I want to make myself feel worse? And if I'm going to die anyway, I should just enjoy the rest of my life that I can. And he was like, and I remember he said, um, Jen, you need to do the stem cell transplant so that we can get you back to running. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> let's do it. And so a bunch of chemo, stem cell transplant in 2016. And I was just kind of, everybody was saying like, be careful, like, well, be careful what you do. Like the whole time that you, before the stem cell transplant, they start giving you a bunch of chemo. And I kept training as much as I could during that time, even though there was absolutely zero guidelines out there that I could find. And my doctor could just said, you know, if you think you can, just don't wear yourself out. So some days I would do absolutely nothing. Some days I'd go out for a little run. Sometimes I would just hike. And I stayed as, the, and, but they did say, you know, the more active you are, the people that are more active have the better responses to the, to the stem cell transplant. Um, about, you know, I came out of the stem cell transplant couldn't walk up a flight of stairs without being completely out of breath. It was pretty hilarious. And, but I just started walking as much as I could. Again, there are some days I never got out of bed. And then there were other days where I would go out and then it'd be like, Oh, I'm going to run a few steps. <laughs> and I would start running again. Um, I, one of the proudest achievements I have is that less than three months after my stem cell transplant, I had entered the stone cat 50 miler 
um, before the, like way back when they first opened up registration. And that was one of the things I did while I was sick. I was like, oh, let's enter a race. Why not? I'll probably never do it, but let's enter a race. And I had entered Stonecat and I wanted to go back East and see people anyway. And so I went back there and I said, you know, Hey, it's, it's four, 12 and a half mile loops. I can just stop whenever and I'll just hike and jog. And I actually had a, I, not only did I finish, I had a better finish than I had the year before, which was like super exciting. And one of the things that was really exciting about that race is I got to see Emily Trespass at that race, who was such a dear friend. And um, just seeing her out there on that stone cat course, I mean, it's just, you can't help but like feel really good when you see that woman. Um, so thankfully I did, um, from there I went on and I did Bandera in January, which was hundred K and then I did Rocky raccoon, which is a hundred miler. And it was just a hair under six months from my stem cell transplant. And as I said, like I, there's probably other people who have done it. I just haven't found them. And I'm not saying that to brag or anything like that. I really, I, it's not that I'm like this, you know, big stellar, you know, gifted athlete, but it's really just more of a, I think people put limitations on themselves. They like to put definitions on what they can and can't do or apply rules, whether or not they think that they make any sense or not. People like to play it a little safe. I'm not saying go out and do stupid things and like ruin your body or anything like that, but listen to your body, give your body what it wants and that includes rest when it wants rest and, and, and just test the waters a little bit. We are capable of doing so much more than we think we are. And there's so much that people will never see, touch, feel, taste, experience, because they're just, they're just afraid to like step out there on that line a little bit. Um, and then you know, my, my other saying is that I have zero proof that running a hundred miles cures cancer, but I have even less proof that it doesn't. So <laughs> that's my, my, my little, my little, uh, flips <laughs> quote there. About you are, yeah. You, you are a study, uh, of, of, of an N plus, uh, 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 an N of one, right? So you are a, yeah. you're a study, you're a study of one, um, well, quite a remarkable comeback, obviously from um, from from that summer of 2016. Uh, and uh, um, it's did so did did ultra distance racing take on a little bit different feel or meaning uh, since uh, since 2016? Um, yeah. Af after after you after you went through all that, I, I think so. Um... I think it kind of started out as like a fun little science experiment. Like you said, I'm a, I'm a subject group of one and just to see what I could do. And I just, I never know, like there's going to, there's going to come a day when I can't do this anymore. And I don't know when that day is going to be, but I'm pretty sure it's going to come a lot faster if I don't continue to, to get out and do these things and enjoy it and see new places. Um, we have this amazing community in, in trail running, like every race you go to is like a family reunion with, with, with friends. And uh, you know, it's something that 
you know, feeds my soul, just being out there, helping to support others, seeing other people struggle with you. Um, and we get to laugh at like how ridiculous it is that we do this stuff sometimes. But um, yeah, I, I, um, oh my gosh, I'm not sure exactly where, where I was, was going with all that, except that, yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the ultra running community is just, it really does speak to me. People don't understand why you do it, but I've tried to explain, like people say like, oh, what did you do on vacation? You ran a hundred miler. Oh, that's what you do to relax. I, there is something about, especially with these longer races, when you can go out there and you can do something that's really uncomfortable and really hard, something that nobody else is making you do, and yet you're doing it um, to get through to the other end, because there's stuff in life that's going to be really hard. And when you can go and you can do something like that, and you know that you can be successful and you can persevere and you can come out the other side, it's going to make you stronger in everything you do in life. Mm. Yeah, no, it's incredibly, it's incredibly empowering. And I think, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you, um, you know, when you describe the, uh, the allure of these ultra distance events, um, e even if they um, make us in incredibly uncomfortable <laughs> while, yeah. while we're, while we're doing them, the, uh, um, the, the experiences overall and, and, the, and the lessons are, are, absolutely in, invaluable. Well, you mentioned, so you, you mentioned, you mentioned trail running community or ultra running community. That's a good segue uh, into, into talking about race directing, which is, which is what I, where I want to finish. Um, because you and I, you and I share that in, in common as well. Um, you mentioned the, the Greenfield high bush uh, uh, trail half marathon that, uh, that you and, uh, and, and Rich, co-race directed, I, yeah. I believe, um, yeah. what, when you were living in New Hampshire. And in 2000, um, in 2012, I reached out to you and to, uh, to our, our mutual friend, Gabe Flanders, who at the time, Gabe was the, uh, was the race director for the Kismet Cliff Beast of the East, uh, half, half marathon. That Kismet Cliff now is a 603 endurance race, Tom Hooper and his gang, uh, have taken that race over, but I reached out to, to you and Gabe, um, to see if you would, if you, this was in 2012, to see if you were interested in, um, in this new project that I was, uh, that I had right. created the, the Granite State Trail Series, sort of modeled after the Western Mass Athletic Association Trail Series, mm -hmm. or the, the Grand Tree Series. Grand uh, Tree, yeah. Grand Tree Series. A Moby Dick. Um, yep. Um, <laughs> trail, trail rate race series uh in in my in, in my observation were always or races that were part of a race series were always uh better attended than than solo races so why not why not have a uh a, a trail series in new hampshire that focused on the half marathon distance and uh with with your race with with gabe's race and the two races at the time that uh, that acidotic racing hosted the Exeter trail race and Vulcan's fury. Those also had uh, half marathon distances. I thought, why not? Let's organize ourselves as a series. You of course uh, agreed to do that. Um, because I mean, what, you know, you didn't really, there was no, no skin off of your back is just oh, yeah. you know us organizing together, collaborating together, uh, uh, promoting each other's events uh, in an effort, right? The rising tide lifts all boats. That was the idea. 
Um, I actually participated uh, in that Greenfield High Bush that year. I was I was grossly underprepared for a trail half marathon, particularly a trail half marathon uh, course designed by you and Rich, which was not not easy. Let's just say. <laughs> Uh, I, 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 I remember in the pre-race announcement, I, I said, I said, pro tip, if you are running and you can't see where the earth just went 15 feet in front of you, you should probably slow down. <laughs> the, uh, I, I, it's funny because I, in, in prep for this show, I, uh, I, I went back and, and, and read the, the race recap that I maintained a blog during that period of time. Yeah. And I actually, I actually did, did race recap that, that event. Uh, and somewhere in the race recap, I, I described what at the time felt like a four mile climb. Now, I don't know if the climb was actually four miles, but it felt like it was a it was a four mile climb. It might have been four miles, actually. I think you might be you might be right. <laughs> <laughs> so so anyway, you were you were a race director and a course designer after my own heart with uh, with that kind of uh, uh, that kind of uh, uh, sadistic uh course design. Um, anyway, um, so we collaborated together um, uh, on that on that series. Um, and then the next year you went off to the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. So um, <laughs> uh, what what did you enjoy about uh, about race directing when you were when, when, when you were here in New Hampshire? Uh, I for me, it's it's like it's my turn to be Martha Stewart. I get to throw a party, and all my friends come, and I hopefully throw a you know put on a great course, and um, not too many people get lost, and you know we all get to like do those things that I love to do, where we see each other before the race, during, and then after, and hang out, and it's just incredibly rewarding for me just in life in general, I love bringing people together. I, I, I really do. Um, I think one of the things that's been interesting for me coming to the West Coast is a very different um, approach to putting on races that I've seen. I was so used to back East where, you know, people are just putting on races, you know, to benefit this or benefit that and races for like 30 bucks, you know, um, to go and, and, and race them. And you always got a free shirt and like, I, and then, then we, I come out West and I'm like, wow, these races are expensive. And you can just tell that, I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people, you kind of get the sense that this is a business and nothing against that, nothing against that whatsoever. But for me, um, and it's not to say that you can't go to one of these races and see all your friends and have that good time that I mentioned. Right. But for me, right. I really want to be inclusive. I really want a race that's community-based, the community supports, that we support the community back as well. I want people to have a great time. Um, people say like, oh, is this a a not-for-profit? And I'm like, well, it's an I wouldn't mind making a profit <laughs> if there's any money left, but I'm not thinking that there's going to be much. Um, I uh, I'm really just want to put on a race that feels very grassroots, very connected, um, and, and, and get people... 
I want to see more people showing up at my races who have like zero ultra sign up results than somebody who has like a really stunning one. I mean, I obviously I'm not saying I don't want good racers to come to my races, but I want people to feel like this isn't a gateway for them in, into running. And it's an opportunity for them to experience what, what you and I have and so many people have gotten out of the, the trail running community. So mm. that's that's kind of what I'm looking forward to doing out um, doing out here. And, and if I put on you know, if we put out a really good course that like breaks your legs, then, you know, then, Hey, <laughs> extra well, points. Well, you, well, you, you and, and, and Rich had a tremendous amount of success here on the East coast. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that you will enjoy the same success on the West coast that, that leads to uh, mountain peaks racing your, uh, your newest, uh, your newest venture. Uh, talk to us a little bit about mountain peaks racing. Yeah, I mean, it's brand new. This is our first race, um, the Olympic Mountains Trail Race. Um, I mentioned earlier that my nephew wanted to run his first ultra, and the race he wanted to come do was the Olympic Mountains um, Trail Race. In September, they had a 50K and a 50 miler. And I wrote to the race director, I said, hey, you haven't announced a date for September yet. Do you know what it's going to be? And he said, actually, I moved and I'm not going to be putting on the race any longer. And I said, oh, need a race director <laughs> to take it on? And he said, maybe. So Richard and I got together um, and uh, we um, started talking to Dennis Cook over there at Everlong Racing, and he agreed to give us the permit for the race. Um, we are putting on the 50k this year, as well as we added a 25k. Um, Dennis suggested that we don't do a, a 25k with with really some very good reasons, but we decided we're we're going to do the 25k this year and then bring the 50 mile distance back next year and also maybe 100k. We took over the race in January and we were the reason we didn't want to get out and, and do a 50 miler was we we knew we weren't going to be able to get onto these trails until June. Though the snow out here in the Olympic Mountains it doesn't melt until June and, and, and in some places well past the beginning of June. So we wanted to be able to put on a course that we felt we could manage. We knew the trails really well on the 50 K course. And that, so we felt good about doing that, but we've got some really great options, as I said, for a 50 miler and a 50 K. So we're thinking about growing this thing into a two day race festival next year. Um, it's, it's a really cool site. It's deep in the Olympic national forest. Most of the inner Olympic Peninsula is either wilderness land or national park where you can't hold a race, but there is national forest land there. And this is one of the few places where you can really connect these trails together in such a way that you can do a, a course of this length. And the headquarters is at an old retired quarry in the middle of the forest. And we're going to have free camping the night before, free camping after. We've got a beer sponsor. We've got a, a coffee sponsor. I mean, beer and coffee and running. I mean, isn't that the like the three key ingredients to any successful trail running festival? I, I, I think that's what they refer to as the as the Ameripois, uh, the Holy <laughs> Trinity, right? Yes. yes beer, right. coffee, and, and trail racing. The trifecta. Right? Yes. <laughs> Correct. Um, so what, 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 how, what has it been like, uh, starting from scratch again, uh, as a, as an event management company? It's, it's, um, 
it's different because social media is so much more important than it ever used to be. And I had to garner all this interest in the race. So I'm out there on Facebook, creating a Facebook page and, and I'm like, Oh, look, we have 23 followers. <laughs> and, and then 20, 24, I follow, I followed the page this morning. Yay. <laughs> um, I think we're up to over 160 now, which is <laughs> just pretty <kidding>. exciting. <laughs> oh, hold on one second. I've got a cough. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Um, and website, um, I still have no idea how to run a website. So um, nobody can find it if they Google it. Um, go to Ultra Sign Up and connect to the link there. But you, but you do have a website because I am, I am actually, I'm actually on it, right? Mountainpeaksracing.com. Um, so yeah, you, so you've got a website, you've got a social media presence uh, on on Facebook. Um, I saw I saw a photo of, of, of you and Richard. Uh, <laughs> it looks like you had just come from I, I want to say Costco, but it probably wasn't Costco. You had you had these it was you, Costco. You had these giant coolers and in in pop up tents. Uh, yeah. Easy ups like it, it was like uh, it, it's like you were shopping at the uh, at the at the at the race director startup aisle. Uh, yeah. at, at Costco, right? Uh, we need uh, everything. We need <laughs> everything. We. It was funny because we went to Costco. I have been the person who has resisted joining Costco for the longest time. And we went there, we got permission to like walk around the store and just, we just wanted to see what prices were and what they had. And five minutes later, I'm coming back. I'm like, all right, sign me up. And we walked out with those, those giant, you know, coolers, a bunch of tents. We've got to go back. Um, we're like, we're like, oh, we've, we've got, we've got 10 people signed up. We can spend a thousand dollars. Oh my God. But now we're up over 90 people. So we got a little more money. We can buy that, some more tents and tables. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so a couple, couple qu questions about, about race directing in the Pacific Northwest and, and the trail running community in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I, I know what it's like uh, hosting races here uh, on the East Coast in, in New England and New Hampshire in, in particular. But um, are there any unique challenges to, uh, to hosting races in the Pacific Northwest? Well, yeah, there is actually. And we're experiencing one right now out here in the Pacific Northwest. We are not for our race, but fires. Um, you know, wildfires are they're a fact of life. And I think the later you get into the summer, you're going to get, um, even if the course isn't, you know, directly impacted by a fire, the, the smoke can, um, affect. So like August is like a, it's a time where it gets in the beginning of September, like kind of risky. Um, unfortunately it's, it's really a shame. Um, the good thing about our race in the um, Olympic Peninsula is, you know, I'm, I'm never going to say that we're immune from fires out there. Um, we can absolutely get the smoke from anywhere else. Um, but it's knock on wood. It's it's a moisture environment. Um, it gets really, you know, from going up uh, in the mountains there, it gets pretty dry and arid. Once you get up top, you get that that Pacific Northwest classic alpine um, terrain. But um yeah, that's probably like the, the most challenging thing. Um, and then what else? Um, you know, I think it's just finding finding places that have where you can kind of link together like really good trails um, with a parking lot. 
you need a, you need to, so you need a place to park cars, right? People always say like, oh, we should do a trail race here, and it's like, well, the parking lot holds four cars, but Correct. probably not. Um, they're going to do that here, uh, finding places where it's not wilderness or or national park or some other place that's protected and doesn't allow um, trail races is is the other part. Um, yeah. What about, what about wildlife, Jen? I mean, it's just something, something as simple as, as wildlife, you know, here, here in, in New Hampshire, I mean, Bigfoot aside, uh, I mean, we, we are generally the scariest things in the woods here in New Hampshire. That's not necessarily the case uh, when you get uh, onto the left coast, uh, perhaps, perhaps the Pacific Northwest, um, you know, doesn't have the big apex, apex predators as say maybe Colorado or, or Montana or Idaho, but, uh, but but uh, wilderness uh, critters are they uh, are they a consideration for you as a race director? I mean, they could be. Um, I mean, you obviously need to be aware of any reports of um, maybe like a cougar or a bear that isn't acting right. Um, for the most part, Pe- people are you know people always say to me like, "Oh, you'll run in the woods by yourself, aren't you afraid of a bear?" And I'm like. Mm-hmm. The thing I'm afraid of is is the two-legged animal in the parking lot. Yeah, for sure. Um, to to be honest with you, um, I mean, it's all there's always a chance. I mean, it happens that there is a wildlife encounter that doesn't go well, um, either with a cougar or a bear, most notably in 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 Washington State. Um, some guy got killed by a, a mountain goat one time in the Olympic National Peninsula. That's right. Um, but uh, they're all gone now. So yeah, and 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 by the way, that that almost certainly was user error because it's it's very clear when you go up, uh, when you go up, uh, uh, in 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 Olympic National Park into the uh the high alpine tundra that you're supposed to stay away from the mountain goats. Um, but some people just don't listen. And, no. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so here's the thing is that cougars, they really don't want anything to do with you either. And, and, and bear, they really don't want anything to do with you either. There's always a chance that you could get like a weirdo out there. Um, or you could get them come between one and their babies. But when you have a lot of people running on the same trail, making a lot of noise and and stuff, like I, I think the risk is, is honestly, you know, pretty low at that point. Um, is it, is it zero? No, but it's not anything that, that I would worry about. Now, if we have grizzly bears or even elk, elk or moose, um, that in breeding season, they can, I, I think they almost, you know, from what I understand, get a little more aggressive, um, potentially, but yeah. Um, yeah. Rattlesnakes and parts of the cascade are out there, but, um, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think anybody really needs to worry. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, West Coast versus East Coast trail running scene uh, similarities and differences. What 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 have what have you seen? Um, I what you know I I'll tell you what my perception is. I haven't been you know I get back every year and I do the Wapak um, trail race and I I see. Um, the people there and stuff. I think there's a little bit of the West Coast where people like to show up with their sprinter van. Um, they have uh, it's it's a little bit more of a fashion show, including including like uh, who's got the coolest beard out here. <laughs> uh, so there's a little bit more of the the lifestyle that you just you, you kind of see out here. 
but I mean, but the people are, the people are great. They're just great as anywhere else. You see a lot more people running with poles out here. That's the, one of the things is that the tra trails are, are really different for the most part than they are back East. Like I remember actually, before we even moved out here, we came out to do a trail race. Um, Richard and I did. And I were, <laughs> this is funny. I remember thinking to myself, I was like, ha, I'm this really good technical trail runner from New England. I'm going to like, I'm going to show these Pacific Northwest people how it's done. And then I got out here and the gun went off and I was like, holy crap, they can run. <laughs> like, like, it's a track meet. I'm like, oh, there aren't any rocks. I get it now. <laughs> Correct. Oh, right. oh my god so you made that made that mistake once um there is technical stuff out here it's just different you don't have the the slick granite in most places you do sometimes people you know the uphills are really long up here and the downhills can be really long out here um so just a, a little bit of, of differences in, in in that regard and i've lost all my technical skills so i'm mm. I'm, I'm just a big baby now is um is it is it is it is it true that, um, you know, we're here in New England, uh, we're, we're much more densely populated, right? So the, the, our, our community sort of uh, um, involves a, 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 feels like a little bit wider area, like, you know, as, as a, as hosting trail races and, and mountain races here in New Hampshire, you know, we, 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 we get folks uh, from, from, from all of the New England states, right? Um is the trail and mountain running community in, in the, in, in on the West coast, be, because the population is more spread out. Um, do the communities feel smaller necessarily or what, like, like it, sort of explain the difference in terms of population. I mean, I know the difference in population density, but, but how do the differences in population density affect the, the, the community feel in terms of the, the, the trail and mountain racing community uh, in the Pacific Northwest, say, versus the trail and mountain racing community here in New England? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, I, I, the, the biggest challenges, you know, the biggest challenges I see are that you don't have as many, it's not so much the races that are different for me. It's the local like little run groups, like having people that you can run with. And maybe it's just more for, more for me, you know, being out here on the, the Kitsap Peninsula. Um, but there's just, it feels a little bit different um, than, you know, even like, even when I was living in New Hampshire, you, you had a group of people that you could just text and say, Hey, want to go for a run. And, and it, there was something about it that just felt like, you know, putting on an old pair of, sho a pair of shoes, you know, or an old pair of slippers, you know, you could just like, it, it was just easy. It was just really easy. And, and things seemed just like a little harder to like pull people together here. Um, I, people are a little harder to find. I think, I think maybe in some communities more, more than others, um, people definitely have to travel further for races here and they're willing to, you know, like, I remember it's like, 
nothing when I lived in New Hampshire to drive down to Connecticut for for a race or <laughs> drive down to Massachusetts. It was it was nothing at all. People here are like they'll drive four or five hours for a race if if they want to do a race, you know, someplace or 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 further. It, people are are really um, up for for making the trek if if they need to. Yeah, people definitely just feel a little little more spread out here and you have mm. little, many more pockets. Yeah. And I and I wonder if that's a if that's a challenge for a race director too that um, you know, you, 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 you talked about introducing people to this, to the sport of trail running. I mean, the 25 K distance certainly is a, is a little bit easier distance to get your arms around than the 50 K or the 50 mile distance or anything beyond that for, for a new trail racer. But, uh, you know, but, but, but how ideal would a, you know, would a 5 K or, or 10 K trail race be, but how far are people willing to travel for a 10 K trail race? You know, yeah. I mean, even the, even the 25 K distance, and, and again, may, maybe, maybe, maybe folks in the Pacific Northwest or, or the West Coast, because they are a little bit more spread out geographically and, and from a population density standpoint, particularly in the, in the Pacific Northwest, maybe they're just accustomed to traveling for races. But I, like, yeah. I, I wouldn't drive four hours for a 25K trail race. I mean, of course, that's yeah. the luxury of living in New England. I wouldn't have to. I could do a 25K trail race this weekend somewhere, you know, within a 90 minute drive if I wanted to. You know, you actually, you, you, I'm glad you brought this up because this is actually one of the things that af after we get this first race off the ground, this is something that's bothered me is that West Coast feels extremely ultra focused. Um, and it's all the races feel long to me. So how do you go about like making that transition? Or what if you only want to run a 5K or a 10K? There are not a lot of 5 and 10Ks. Maybe if you're in Seattle, um, you, you can you can find some. But that is actually one thing that that I want to do. Um, well, Richard and I both want to do it. I shouldn't just say me. Um, is that we, we'd like to start some local races and, and offer some shorter distances to some feeder events to help, you know, you know, make trail running accessible to people who aren't interested in running a 50k. Like, it's okay. You don't have to be a run a 50k and and be a part of the the you know part of the group here. Um, and or maybe they're kids or or what have you. We should have opportunity more opportunities like that. So that is something that I I want do mm. want to do because it's a great sport. Yeah, and and it should be accessible for all. Yeah, and it's precisely why we host the uh, Kingman Farm Trail Race on on Kingman Farm, the the the, the, the property owned by the University of New Hampshire in, in Madbury. Uh, it's a three point five mile trail race that we've hosted nice. for for a decade now. Um, uh, you know, it's it, it, it right. It's it, it it it's not a it's not an epic distance, but it's a great it it's the perfect distance to get people introduced to the sport of trail running. Right. Um, uh, Jen, by the time this podcast is released, you, the the Olympic uh, Mountains Trail races will have already happened. But um, but but for the listener who who is uh, who is intrigued uh, for 2024, um, give us a little bit more of the details. Uh, uh, um, when are when are the races? Because you you may not know the 2024 date yet. But give us the 2023 date, uh, or yeah, or. Tell us more about the about the Olympic yeah. Mountain Trail races for. Oh for sure, yeah, no, up. I'd love to. So it's um, this year. It's September sixteenth, uh, and so it makes it the last Saturday before the official end of summer. 
the race will be held um, on the Olympic Peninsula in the Olympic National Forest. So 12 miles off of the closest main road is, is where the race uh, starts and finishes. Free camping the night before and after. Um, the 25K, so that's a new course. And it has, um, it starts out with five miles of single track, including, I would say like a, a noticeable climb in it. And then it runs down a forest road, which typically I don't like to, I'd like to stay on single track as much as, as possible. But I think for somebody who's in a 25K distance that they won't mind, you know, taking this trek down the forest road. And it's, it's really pretty. Besides, um, at the end of the, the four miles of forest road, they're going to come to an aid station and they are going to climb and wonder what the heck happened to them. Um, it is, <laughs> we're going to have their legs ripped off. Yeah. And we're going to rip your little legs off um, on this climb up to the top of Mount Zion. There's an overlook um, up there. Hopefully people can grab some pictures. And then um, if the overlook is actually before the True Summit. Then they'll hit the True Summit. And then they're going to have this unbelievable buttery downhill where you're just going to be able to fly. Like don't trip because you're going to go like flying. <laughs> it is going to, you're going to be able to pick up some speed on this thing. Um, you'll um, hit the first aid station again, and then you take a right and you've got a mile and a half of forest road back to the start finish line. And the, the reason that I, I mentioned earlier that the original race director kind of warned us off of doing a 25 K. And I think that he's, his concern was that, um, people who come to do a 25k don't always know what they're getting themselves into and they can get out there and then say, wow, this is too hard for me. I want to drop. And then as a race director, you're dealing with somebody who dropped in like a really bad, bad place. And you, you just, you, it's not easy to get them out of there, to extract them out of there, to get them a ride out, whatever. Um, but this course actually lends itself really well. If that happens and somebody, you know, does need to be, um, needs a ride home, we can get them out really easily. Um, again, it gives people an opportunity to, to do a shorter distance. Um, so I think that's going to be, you know, depending on what the feedback is this year, I think it's, you know, I anticipate this being a, a staple of the race, um, going forward. Um, so that's the new distance that we developed. So two big climbs and then some nice runnable stuff in there, um, too. The 50 K is super interesting because it has a lot of single track on it, including kind of those, um, wetter, moister, like Pacific Northwest images that you have in your head with lots of moss and, and running water. Um, so beautiful running. Um, and then you hit the first aid station. The first aid station is 10 miles in. So you just need to like be prepared and carry a little extra with you. Um, then then we're really going to break your legs. We're sending you up this climb almost to the top of, of Mount Townsend where you're going to go from that green, beautiful, mossy stuff to rocky outcroppings, um, a lot of dead, you know, trees that have been like petrified there for who knows how many years, but big, big view of the Olympic mountain range um, from there. I, I don't know that you're going to see any snow on any of those mountains at this time of year. It's, it's a lot of it has melted this year, but you're going to go up pretty high into this high alpine terrain, which is, which is really cool. Before we turn you around, you'll do a little out and back and then we'll shoot you down the mountain um a different way 
you've got a little forest run in here before we send you up that same climb I mentioned that we send the 25Kers up to the top of Mount Zion. So we're going to break your legs twice in this one. And uh, then you'll have that beautiful buttery downhill and then another um, five-mile section that's mostly single track to, to get you back to the start-finish line. That isn't that hard, but you're going to be tired, so it's going to feel hard. A um, couple follow-ups. Mount Zion, uh, uh, elevation uh, of Mount Zion. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know this was a quiz, Chris. Um, I don't know, like 4,500 feet. Okay, um, all right. Oh, well, just, I, I just, but, just but wondering, like, I don't know. The, mountain, a... <laughs> the mountains are big out there, Jen. So, they right? are, so you, yeah. you say Mount Zion, and I think when I think mountains here on the East Coast, you know, we, we have four or 5,000 footers. But I think yeah. mountains on the West Coast, you know, there's a possibility that they're like, they are like real legit mountains. All right, 4,500 give or take i'm not we won't hold yeah. you to it just okay that's that's reasonable the, the climb up though is like uh 2750 i think is the climb okay, up there. that's stout that's stout mount townsend what, what are we talking about Ele elevation uh, mount townsend similar it's a little taller it's probably about i would say it's probably closer to six thousand. okay all right okay all right all right again i put putting you on the spot we don't necessarily need those details hammered down right now but just just to have, have an have an idea. Six, um, sixty-two forty-three, according to <laughs> Google, and Google, the internet is never wrong. Sixty-two forty-three from Mount Townsend. Yeah, that was pretty yeah. close, right? Yeah, you were close. That was a good guess. Uh, and I suspect you're looking at Mount Zion now. I am. Um, wow. Wait, that can't be right. Hang on. I think you gave me the wrong Mount Zion. There are a lot of Mount Mount Zions out, out there. Uh, Forty-two seventy-eight. So I wasn't. I was. I was those it's were great guesses. Close. Those were excellent Within guesses. Within 5%. Okay. Okay. Uh, all right. And then, um, so, but but all the details uh, of those races can be found on the uh, on the website. I'm looking at it yep. now. Um, Go okay. to Ultra Sign Up, link out to the website from there if you can't yep. find it. Okay. Yep. Got it. Got it. Got it. Um, uh, last thing related uh, related to the race. Uh, well, two things actually. Um, Trail Sisters, you uh, the the races are Trail Sisters approved this year. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah, um, which I think is pretty cool. Um, so to be a Trail Sisters approved race, you have to do um, four things. Um, you have to provide equal space, have equal space available at the start line. Um, for, for women, I'm like, I'm going to tell you, like, I always just kind of went behind the fast guys, you know, I never felt like I, um, you know, uh, like there was a, a space for me up front. So that's kind of nice. Um, if you're giving away any swag, like it needs to either be gen gender neutral or you'll have women's sizes and, or fitting things. Um, I can't tell you how many men cut t-shirts I've had over the years that you're like, oh, well, that'll be great to sleep in. Um, so uh, that's one thing. Equal prizes at the finish line. So for the 50K this year, we have prize money. It's not a lot, but it's, you know, it's enough to get you a really nice dinner and then pay for your gas. Um, $150 uh, for men and women and then $150 for the next two places. So equal prizes for men and women. And then the third thing is that we have feminine hygiene products available at aid stations, which let me tell you, um, as a woman who raced over the years, and it's not so, something that you want to think about happening, but sometimes stuff happens. And you know what? It's just kind of a drag to have to like 
carry stuff with you on the course and think about all that just to know that it's out there and it's available is really nice. So I, I'm digging it. Mm, yeah, we, uh, uh, we we went through the approval process for our uh, our mountain races as well. Gina Lucrezi and and her gang uh, do a great job with Trail Sisters. We we absolutely support that cause. Um, Jen, how do people f uh, learn more about uh, mountain peaks racing and uh, the Olympic Mountains trail races? Yeah, I mean, just just Google us. Um, look on Facebook. Um, just look for the Olympic Mountains Trail Races on Facebook, um, and, and you'll find us there. And there I've posted a bunch of photographs of, of what's to come. Um, you can go to Ultra Sign Up and find the races as well as the link out to the, the website because, as I said, I've, I've done a terrible job of, like, you know, developing this website and making it searchable. So help if anybody wants to help me with that, help. Um, and um, the other thing I would just say is, is keep an eye on this race for uh, next year because we are hoping to get approval to add a, bring back the 50 mile distance. We have some tweaks that we want to make to it. And then we think we have a 100K course scouted out as well. So the goal is to make this a two-day running festival up there on the Olympic Peninsula. Um, we have over 90 people signed up for the two races this year. We're hoping to get permission to invite more people for next year. And it's just a really beautiful place. I mean, this is... I am so thankful that we live in a place that people come on vacation. And you know what? When I lived in New Hampshire, I lived in a place where people come on vacation, right? I think yeah. that there's a lot to be said about living sure. someplace really beautiful. Um, so come out, make a trip of it. People dream about going to the Olympic Peninsula. Why not come out, do a race, and have a really good time? Mm, well, I can I, I can speak for uh, a New Englander who has uh, sojourned out to the Pacific Northwest and as someone who has participated, has been a participant at your event, both you and Richard uh, are amazing race directors, uh, incredible attention to detail, do it for all the right reasons. Um, so from a race, uh, from, from a participant perspective, there's no doubt that, that those races are going to be incredibly successful. And then, of course, um, the Pacific Northwest, um, um, Washington State, uh, that area of the Pacific Northwest is incredibly beautiful. Um, it's I mean, it's a it's a vacation in which you embed a trail race as part of the vacation. Right. I mean, that's absolutely. Uh, and that's. Um, that's a that's a that's a fairly that's a fairly unique thing for, you know, as destination races go. And of course, you know, you you're going to want your bread and butter to be, you know, to be folks who live in the Pacific Northwest. But I, I suspect that you do see this race as a destination race, as a race that will draw people from all over the country um, because it is because it is, is it is such a it is such a beautiful location to to host a race. in. I mean, do you see it that way? I hope so. I mean, I think it should be. I, I people um, we've gone to quote unquote destination races. We we go to Zion sometimes, and some. We, this is one of the reasons we love to run, right? Is we love to go see places that we haven't been before. We go to the Bighorns. We go to Idaho, um, and uh, oh, and I'm on the wait list for Hurt. So uh, you know. Not that I need to, to get into hurt to go to Hawaii, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, this is one of the great things about our sport is you get to go to these races, see beautiful places you wouldn't necessarily go to. 
otherwise. And, 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 you know, it's, you go and, and plus somebody's like, you don't have to pick up a hiking guide, right? Like somebody was actually like laying, they're putting breadcrumbs everywhere for you that you can follow to all of these beautiful places and they feed you along the way. And, and maybe you have to run a little bit so you make the cutoffs, but yeah, no, it's a really great place to see new parts of the world. So I hope people do come. Yeah. Well, be best of luck um, this September and uh, maybe with some good fortune and uh, an improvement in my, my right knee, maybe I'll see you in 2024 for the, for the 25K. We would love that. Absolutely. Yeah. Please, please come and be our guests out here. Jen, thank you. Thanks so much for sharing your story. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. On behalf of Richard, too, we um, thank you for um, talking about the race. And we would love to see people. And uh, we're looking forward to the next time we get to see each other and catch up some work in person, Chris. Thanks. The Pacific Northwest is an incredibly magical place. There is no doubt that Jen and Richard will not only keep the Olympic Mountains trail races alive, but they will elevate the event to an entirely new level. Their passion for trail running and trail runners is palpable. If you're looking for a destination race, look no further than Mountain Peaks Racing. Once again, you've been listening to the Eat Half Walk Double podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please circle back to the homepage and click the follow or subscribe button to stay up to date with all the new content. And of course, if you really enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my threads and X accounts at Chris J. Dunn and the show's Facebook page at Eat Half Walk Double. So make sure to check it out. And lastly, remember, the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.